Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Everyone loves Matthew's passage about the lilies of the field. We love it because who doesn't want to be consoled and encouraged not to worry about anything? But our enthusiasm is misplaced. We get excited about our freedom from worry in the same way that we misread our liberation from Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, the Lord's people were not set free from Egypt so that they could be free. As the Lord said to Moses repeatedly, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. In Matthew, the followers of Jesus are not set free from worry so that we can be free from worry. On the contrary, we are warned that our worries pertain to the wrong master. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 22 to 30. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 256 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today, Rich, we have the opportunity to see how Matthew ties all of these themes together in a passage that is often referred to by people who are dealing with stress or anxiety about life. We all love to talk about. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 forward. But those verses don't make sense, and the cause for worrying does not go away until you first deal with verses 22, 23, and 24. You are only allowed to care what God thinks. This is exclusive. It's not saying you should care more about what God thinks than what other people think. No. You have to only care about what God thinks and not care what other people think. You are only allowed to accept what God provides you and not what other human beings provide you. It is an exclusive deal. And as soon as your eye deviates, this is when you have committed sin. This is when you've committed rebellion. This is pesha, the Hebrew word for sin and rebellion. And it means you're only allowed to follow this one master. I mean, it's like in the military. The greatest sin you can commit in the military is if your sergeant tells you to do something and you don't like it, you go to your lieutenant. This is the worst sin because if your sergeant said it, your sergeant said it. The lieutenant is not your master. Your sergeant is. The lieutenant is the sergeant's master. You are only allowed to see and to seek the Lord as the one who provides 
everything. As soon as your eye deviates from that, this is sin. People make the mistake often, Richard, when their children complain that their colleagues at school think less of them, or when children imagine that someone thinks less of them. What the parent typically says is, all that matters is what you think. And ultimately, that's true for all of us. At the end of the day, we're left with our own conscience and our own decisions and the stands that we take in life. But the best advice, the best counsel you could give a teenager struggling with the false problem of managing other people's perceptions, the best advice you could give them is to say that the only opinion that matters is my opinion as your parent and the opinion of your teachers who are assessing your work. And I make that clarification because someone in their teens is being formed. They are learning. And so before they can take a stand as a fully formed person and say, this is what I want, or this is what I like, or this is my assessment, they have to be assessed. They have to be judged. And there is, of course, hopefully an understanding the ones assigned to judge us when we are being formed are the ones who care for us and who give us instruction. Now, the nice thing about that setup is that when you concern yourself only with the opinion of a parent or a teacher, you are putting your trust in someone. You're giving them the freedom to critique you or to lift you up for your edification, but you are putting your trust. And once you place that trust, you no longer have to worry about what your peers say about you. You don't have to worry if people like you. You don't have to worry about their impression of your clothing or whatever, all the things that kids worry about. You just focus on the opinion of the one who is responsible for you, and they will help you sort things out and give you what you need and advise you as needed. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. I have mentioned several times, Richard, this past year, maybe longer on the podcast, that in the ancient world, there was an assumption that when you look at something, you can see it because your eye projects light onto it. And of course, in the modern world, we understand that this isn't how sight works. In fact, light is reflected off of an object back to your eye. But the assumption of the ancient scientist that it was light being projected onto the world says something about the biblical understanding of human perception and ultimately idolatry, because we project, we look at a statue and we project onto the statue and the self-projection becomes the God we worship, which becomes a form of self-worship. That's ultimately the powerful critique of idolatry. So here, when the text is saying the eye is the lamp of the body, it's beginning this discussion, this critique, about the difference between the light you project on the world and the light that the words of your master, scripture, that those words cast on the world to control what you see. This reminds me of the passage that we read in the beginning of Matthew 5 about the light and the lamp, although the vocabulary is different, the words for light and lamp are different, but the way that it functions in Matthew 5 
is that a light that is on a lamp is not covered. This is what we discussed earlier. The light is the teaching that the human being has internalized, which then shines out to others. But what's interesting is we always assume that it's for the sake of the others seeing the light. But here, the point of having this light is so that the one who bears the light can see correctly. The light isn't just on the hill for everyone who's trying to find the city. It's for everyone in the city as well. Everyone needs that light. But here, the one who is trying to see correctly needs to have the light. But the light, which we saw in the last chapter, was the light of the teaching that Jesus was trying to convey to his audience. You need the light in order to be able to see the singular master. Otherwise, you're working blindly. And the light is that teaching that we saw in the last chapter. So if you think back, Richard, to exactly the reference you were making earlier in Matthew, where we talked about the city on the hill and not hiding the light that's in the lamp and so forth, the important point was that the light is something that is put into the lamp. The way that the will of God in Scripture puts the ergon into you in Paul's letters. The work is put into you. The light is put into you. And so here, in effect, there's your light, which, when you shine it on the world, results in idolatry, which is the worship of a false master, the following after a false master. That light is being replaced, again, with the light of instruction. It's, in a way, the same metaphor but refined and focused to put the lens of judgment directly on the one who claims to be bearing that light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So if you are not allowing the light of God's instruction in Scripture to supplant the light of your way of thinking and your way of seeing, which is idolatrous. If you don't let God supplant that light, everything you see will be polluted by your light, which is darkness, because there's only one light that can guide us on the path. It's the light of God's wisdom. It's only God's wisdom that can put us on the path. I'm glad you said that, Father, because when people interpret the passage from Matthew 5, they think the light is for others. But chapter 5 can't stop with chapter 5. There's a reason why Jesus kept talking. If people, if people were sitting on the mount with Jesus and only sat there through chapter 5 and then decided that they had heard enough that Jesus is now repeating himself too much, it's now boring, so I'm going to leave, and I got enough, I pretty much understood what he was trying to say from that first chapter, then you missed the entire point. Jesus brings it around this idea of the light, saying that it's for you, the listener, that the light comes. It's so that you can see correctly. If you have no light, then you're traveling blind. You are the one in darkness. The light is to light your path so that you can see. So the light that is given in chapter 5 is not for the others. It's for you to see. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and wealth. Again, people hear these verses and think that it's just a mishmash of sayings, but that's incorrect. There's absolute continuity in Matthew. So we begin with the I, which is a repetition and a refinement of the earlier statement about the light of the Torah in Matthew. And now we're summarizing much of what we've heard, which is this tension about who our master is. Remember, if you understand that your light is false and the light of Scripture is correct, you are acknowledging who your master is. Now, if you follow the light that is dark, if you follow the light of your own will, you're going to pursue what you think benefits you, which is beautifully represented in Scripture by wealth. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And last week, I hit on that a bit in the intro, Rich, that everyone loves money, as we've said, and everybody wants to follow money and worship money because money serves the desires of the human being, the desire to control, the desire to possess, the desire to dominate, the desire for comfort and ease, the desire for security. All of these desires, which are satisfied by the acquisition of wealth, put us in opposition to the one master. And you mentioned Hosea, you mentioned Baal. Repeatedly, the people associate divinity with the source of security and sustenance. So if you're seeking wealth, it's a bit like taking credit for the work of the gospel. But the credit for the fruit of the work of the gospel is attributed to the gospel, to the commandment, not to the one who is obeying the commandment. And if you seek wealth from any other source, if you seek sustenance from any other source, you are worshiping Baal. That's exactly right, Father. I mean, you're worshiping Baal. I mean, here it's mammon, and people like to, you know, the translation you used fudges a bit and says wealth. But Mammon is representing wealth here, so that's correct. But it really is saying, if you're serving anything, anyone, any idea besides God, you are an idolater. And this comes directly from Hosea. The only source of anything must be God. And this is the extreme point that everyone misses from Matthew. Matthew is a mean teacher, because he's saying that you can't, you are not allowed to seek any comfort, any wealth, any prosperity from anyone but God. And people fudge and they say, eh, well, you know, I don't love money, but we need money. I mean, it's practical. And so we have money. No, because actually later on, as we heard in Ephesus school this weekend, in chapter 10, Jesus, when he tells his disciples, you can't take anything with you. You have to depend completely on the Lord. So no, it's not, well, we need money. Well, we, no, it doesn't work that way. You're only allowed to accept those things that God places in your hands. If any human being, any force, including your boss, including your job, including your paycheck, anything, that is mammon. That is not God. And this is the challenge that no one is willing to accept when they hear this teaching. When you depend on your employer for your security, 
your employer obviously controls you at that point. And your employer can betray you and fire you and let you go and cut you off. When you depend on your friends at school for praise or approval or for their advice and opinion, instead of trusting in a parent or a teacher who has your well-being at heart, when you do that, you are exposing yourself to betrayal. You have something to worry about. Then you have to figure out how to manage the perception of your friends and you have to please them or you have to please your employer. Or if you're under a difficult or tough political regime, you need to please your rulers in order to survive. It becomes this whole play and the minor profits on the lust for security, something we've hit on repeatedly. But when you trust in the Lord, meaning when you have an eye, as you said, Richard, only for his instruction, then suddenly you are able to do what Paul is able to do in the New Testament and what Matthew in chapter 10, again, as we heard this weekend, is able to do. You're able to take your sustenance from the work of teaching itself, from the scriptures themselves. In other words, the gospel becomes your means of sustenance. And then you don't depend on anyone but the Lord who provides the daily bread of the gospel. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The one thing I'll say here, Rich, is that everyone loves this passage for its obvious, simple meaning which could be extracted, so to speak, as a poem, somehow separate from the broader canon of Matthew, but that's a huge mistake. True, it has meaning, but it becomes like a dimmed light when you take it out of context. Because you can take this into a discussion of psychology and how it makes no sense to worry and why worry you can't control, and we've heard people say that a million times about this text. But that's not the point. That's like taking Exodus and saying, oh, isn't it great that people were delivered from Pharaoh? It's all about liberation and social justice and civil liberties and democracy. Well, my dear friends, if a Semitic text, if the Torah is about democracy, then we're reading the wrong text. That's a Hellenistic concept. It's not about our freedom per se. That's what Paul is critiquing. We're not talking about Roman freedom. And we're not talking here about the psychology of not feeling anxious and not having control issues. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about giving control to the master, just like we are set free in Exodus because we become the slave of a new master. Without that important clarification, the text loses its might. Exactly. I mean, when the slaves left Egypt, they went to a new state of affairs. And the new state of affairs was under Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave them food. In the wilderness, the Lord gave them food. That's the main difference. Who was the one who was keeping them alive? Now, it was actually easier under the Lord because they had all the food that they needed. Whereas under Pharaoh, they got fed according to how much they benefited Pharaoh. 
under the Lord, they had to follow a new law, which was to take care of the stranger and the widow and the orphan. Under Pharaoh, they had to build pyramids and put together bricks and that sort of thing. A very different kind of task, a very different kind of law. And here, you know, the way that the passage works, oftentimes when people use it, they're saying, oh, it's okay. You don't need to worry about this. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about things. Oh, it's okay. Don't be concerned. It's fine. When in fact, it's much harsher. You are not allowed to think about your life, to worry about your food and drink or your clothing. You are not allowed. So to the one who is suffering, this is often delivered as, oh, don't worry. You don't need to worry about these things. When in fact, you were worrying about the wrong things. This is a judgment on the things that the person was concerned about, which is, of course, mean. <laughs> we don't like to talk that way to people who are suffering. It doesn't fit with the way that we, as polite North Americans, like to talk. This is about saying you're not allowed to worry about yourself. You're not allowed to worry about your biology. You're not allowed to worry about your life. You're not allowed to worry about those things that make you comfortable. You are not allowed. And if you are worried about those things, this is what it means to serve mammon. Rich, this is why I loved Holly's reading of Matthew 10 this weekend, because she pressed the point that you can only take life from Scripture. You can only take sustenance. You can only take security. You can only take whatever you need for your journey in the commission in Matthew chapter 10. You can only take the gospel itself. Suddenly, you see how the prohibition against mammon is highly functional with respect to our worries. And you see also how the eye as the lamp of the body, that this metaphor is highly functional with respect to our worries. Because all worry begins, as you said in the beginning, when your eye wanders from the life-giving words of Scripture to other things. And in this sense, even though the translation of wealth is limiting the depth of the term mammon, I understand why they chose wealth, because wealth in Scripture coalesces this wandering of the eye away from God as our provider. So the best thing to do would be to hear wealth in the broadest sense as everything that the Lord provides in order to sustain us. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, are you not worth much more than they? The birds are taken care of in spite of the fact that they are not taking care of themselves. And this goes against the very American notion that people are only worthy or deserving of care or of wealth if they've worked for it. Jesus himself says, the birds don't work for the sustenance that they're given, yet God provides for them. So if the listener thinks that the only one worthy of being taken care of is the one who works for it, they need to reread Matthew. 
I challenge anyone, Richard, who tells me the only things you should get in life or that you deserve in life are the things that you've earned or who talks about their gain in comparison to those who have not by saying, I earned it. I challenge those individuals, if they claim to be disciples of Jesus, to read Matthew a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth time, let alone the rest of the New Testament. I mean, come on, what did you earn? The shirt that you're wearing today, whoever you are, oh man, the shirt that you're wearing today, how many hands did it have to go through before it landed on the rack at the local department store? How many people working in factories under difficult circumstances being treated like automatons in order to get you the bargain basement price that you so desperately want? How many hundreds of people, perhaps even children, worked in those factories somewhere abroad so that you could get a shirt for 20 bucks? And you want to tell us that you earned it? Shame on you. Those people are your brothers and sisters, and they did not get their due reward for the effort they put into your shirt. So even, Rich, on the basic level of how things work in the world, you can prove empirically that the notion of earning is a fallacy. It's a fiction that we create in order to, and this is a tautology, in order to manage the economy. The economy is how we manage our affairs. But it's a fiction. I love listening to Nassim Taleb talk about economics. The way he describes economics in the West, he critiques it as another theology. It's a made-up theology that people use to justify what they want. We don't earn anything. Everything is provided. It's a gift. And my point about Taleb is that his point is that no one really knows what's going to happen. Economics is the fiction of pretending you know what's going to happen to create a false sense of security so that things keep running. But his point is that no one can control the will of God. That's my description of his point. And you don't know what the black swan is going to be around the corner, which means that all of this talk is a bunch of nonsense. And you want to convince me that you earn something? You have no control. There is no earning. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life. This is my point, Rich, about the black swan. So you work and you labor under the illusion that you've earned something and then the stock market crashes. Or you work and you labor under the illusion that you've earned something and then you die and you can't take it with you in Matthew. You can't take it with you in life, which is Matthew's point. So what did you earn? Who are you kidding? And then you console yourself. You console yourself by saying, I worked hard so that I could buy this shirt. And in this self-consolation, you ignore the basic fact that you will go back to the same ground as the young factory workers overseas who had to sweat and toil for pennies to give you your shirt. As soon as you say, I worked so that I could have this shirt, there is no God in that equation. You worked, you got the shirt. So what use is God? You have no need of God. This is the worship of mammon. That defines the worship of mammon. 
it proves that the light inside of you is darkness. You can't see God. Because as soon as you believe that you're the one who earned the shirt, there is no God. This is the denial of God. This is apostasy, according to Matthew, in the most harsh terms. I love the way he puts it. You can't add one bit to your height. You can't change who you are. You can't change what you look like. You can't change your appearance. And you can go and buy a shirt and you think that you've done something. Because you can buy a shirt. You can't do a single thing to your biology. The people who spend millions of dollars so that they can buy vitamins and have the best diet so that they can live the best life. And then lo and behold, they get cancer. Well, which God were you serving? Were you serving the one who provides food for you? Or were you serving the one who promised you eternal life and couldn't deliver? This is really where it comes down. And you have to understand that Matthew divides this in the harshest sense. There is only one God, and he provides everything. Or it's your health or your vitamins or your job, or your earning, or your shirt, or whatever, which is not God. It is something else, and that's mammon. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. I love this verse, Richard, for two reasons. Number one, because it again really emphasizes the point that God provides. He provides. You don't have to do anything. He will provide. Just be like Isaac and sit on your rear end and let your father provide for you. And then at the same time, he hits on Solomon by contrasting the lowly lilies of the field with the mighty human king who was a builder of buildings, most specifically the temple, which was an affront to God's instruction. Here, Matthew is saying, look, you can try to build something like Solomon, or you can just appreciate what the Lord provides. And this hits beautifully on Father Paul's point about shepherdism in the Torah. Because all throughout Genesis, men try to build things And God just wants to provide them a beautiful garden to sustain them where there's life. And you don't have to take a loan out to pay for the garden of the Lord's wilderness. You don't have to build an army to defend the lilies growing in the field. Solomon had it wrong, Richard. The fact that Jesus underscores the same point. The birds had everything they needed, even though they didn't work for it and didn't deserve it. The lilies got everything they needed, even though they didn't work and they didn't deserve it. And the glory of Solomon, because remember, he prayed for wisdom and he got wisdom from the Lord. Even he didn't get what the lilies did, which again tells us that you do not earn what you have. You do not earn what you have. The Lord gifts it to you. This is the charis. 
of the Lord. It's completely a gift, everything that you have from him. And by the way, everything you have is from him. Not your work, not your kind boss, not the economy, not the GDP, not the exports, not your rule of law, not your constitution. None of these things provided for you. Only the Lord. And as soon as you believe it's the constitution or the economy or the GDP, you now are worshiping mammon and you have apostatized from the Lord. It's that stark. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So we come back to the question of trust in the initial example at the outset of today's show. Whose opinions should you care about, your peers or the ones above you who were set above you for your instruction? If you trust your parents and you listen to their word, then you will be unaffected by the false words of those who would give their opinion about you, positive or negative. Which means on the one hand, you are protected from being put down, but on the other hand, you are protected from being puffed up and exploited if you remember that the only opinion that matters is that of your mother or your father. Those are the ones in whom you should place your trust. But if you stray from that, that's when you get into trouble. And I say trust, I'll remind everyone once again, Richard, that faith, pistis in Greek, the best way to understand it is the English word trust. Only having faith, only trusting in the one who gives. And I love how it twists the knife, oh, you of little faith. Oligopistos. Oligo means a small amount, and pistos means faith. So oligopistos. You who are listening to me have little faith. Why? Because you believe that you deserve more than the grass. But if God is taking care of the grass, what are you worried about? You forgot to see what's happening with the grass and how God is allowing the grass to be glorious and beautiful and to have everything it needs, even though it does nothing to deserve it. And you think you are making something, doing something to deserve what you have, and you don't. It's a gift. So don't believe that because you have a certain passport or a certain paycheck or in a certain income tax bracket, that you're somehow better off. Because the grass, which has no tax bracket, is just as good off as you are. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. We'll pick up next week with the rest of this section. Have a great day, and I look forward to our next discussion. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.